crush your enemies. They drew first blood, not me. See them driven before you? Oh, my user. And they hear the lamentation of the women. But I pity the fool. Glitter in the dark near the ten hours of gate. Phone home. They're here. Oh, real light sleeper, child. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing The Seduction, released January 29th, 1982. It was written and directed by David Schmoller and released by Avco Embassy Pictures. This film came about as the third title of a three-picture deal produced by Irwin Yablans and Bruce Cone Curtis, who had previously collaborated on Roller Boogie and Hell Knight. Writer-director David Schmoller based the story, originally illogically entitled The Romance, on the true story of a Los Angeles anchor person who was stalked by a viewer. So the seduction doesn't fit the plot, yeah, but the romance fits even worse. Well, okay, so my question about the seduction is... In theory, if we try to make this fit, who is the one doing the seducing? The stalker. Now, see, I disagree. You think she's seducing him? I, I think in the end. I think it, that's like, I, I think, he's, I think, he's been seduced or is it yeah, just- Yeah, yeah exactly. Know. Yeah, he's under the spell. He has been seduced. Yes. So the seduction happened prior to the film. <laughs> I, yeah. But it's also a terrible title. should be called like the obsessed or- uh, I don't know, like... Well, obsession was already taken obsession, at this point. Yeah. yeah. By Calvin no, that Klein. Was, that was... That came out in 82. Is it an 82 yeah. movie? Oh. Schmoller had written the lead with Teresa Russell in mind, Russell who we last saw in Nicholas Rogue's Bad Timing. For the part of Derek, both Peter Gallagher and Michael Keaton were brought in for auditions. Oh, I think Peter Gallagher would have been great. I think he would have been good. I think Michael Keaton doesn't work because she would have fallen for him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> the problem. It doesn't make sense that she wouldn't be charming. hot for him. We'll have to confirm this ourselves, but it seems this was the final Avco Embassy film as the company began operation under just the name Embassy after a sale to Norman Lear, starting with their next release, Wes Craven's Swamp Thing. The production was plagued by protests on account of Yablanza's decision to employ many non-union crew, including writer-director Schmoller. Weirdly, in the Variety article covering the situation, Yablanza's only mentioned excuse is that he couldn't keep the film under its $2 million budget with union crew. But that's literally the whole point of unions. It's like, oh, no, no. I paid them less than I'm supposed to because I couldn't afford to pay them what I'm supposed to. It's like, yeah, that's why we're mad. Yeah. An early test screening earned a promising reaction from people who were probably just excited to see Morgan Fairchild naked. And upon the film's eventual release, it was showered with Golden Raspberry nominations, two for Fairchild and one for Colleen Camp. It didn't win any, and the film ultimately ranked sixth in the annual box office, with a take of $11 million. So is it better to not win? Like, is that like, is the honor, is the know. true honor of the Razzies to not win your Razzie? It's a disgrace just to be nominated. <laughs> <laughs> the film starts at night in the backyard pool of anchorwoman Jamie Douglas, played by Morgan Fairchild. Dionne Warwick's original song plays out over fluorescent pink handwritten opening credits. After a moment, we see someone swimming through frame, and after a few more passes, we notice it's a naked woman, protagonist Jamie Douglas. As the camera backs up, we see a next-door neighbor is snapping pictures of the swim with a telephoto lens. Inside her house, we see Jamie's lover Brandon, played by Michael Sarazen. Brandon moves to join her in the pool, so the photographer neighbor calls the house to interrupt the moment. 
We'll come to know this neighbor as Derek, and he's being played by Andrew Stevens. He gets a few more photos of Jamie rising from the pool, and when she answers the phone, he leaves her a cryptic message. I watched you today. What? You look beautiful. In his own home office, Derek turns to look at a wall of photographs of Jamie. When Jamie enters the newsroom the next day, she's surprised by her assistant Bobby with a bouquet of flowers from an adoring fan. We cut to Derek's work at a photography studio, and a woman named Julie knocks at the door of a dark room where Derek is developing his photos of the night swim. Seems like you would develop these in your own home dark room and not take them to work. Yeah, it does seem weird, because he's clearly a photographer. He has this equipment, and yeah. he, he seems like he's well off based on yeah, his, his living. Home. Yeah. yeah. Unclear how a Kmart photographer makes enough to live uphill from a network news anchor in Los Angeles. She's informing Derek that Mrs. Wilson and her son Ricky are here for a photo session, and he asks her to please handle them for him. Back at the news station, we see Jamie Douglas is the lead anchor for the 6 o'clock news in Los Angeles. We cut back to the photo place, and the child, Ricky, is making a very grumpy face to waste the photographer's time. This kid, by the way, is the director's son. Do you guys recall the last time we had a film featured the director's son? Was the son a child in the yep. film? Was it... Um... They were on the beach and the kids were playing together and no. No, I think you're thinking of Ragtime. I am thinking of Ragtime. Okay. And that was not the director's children. That was a different director's children. Oh. <laughs> Those was Mike Nichols' kids were playing two different unrelated yeah. children in that movie. Uh, I was thinking Aftermath? The Aftermath is what oh, I was looking okay. for. Can you guys recall other examples? I went back through the list and I found a few. You found mm. a few. Oh, gosh. Um, is it always a son or is it sometimes a daughter? There's a couple that are a daughter. I, I have... Two daughters and three sons. Oh, my gosh. I might need some hints. Um, one of them also has Colleen Camp in it. it T- Tatum, Ryan O'Neill didn't direct. No, he didn't direct. No. It was Bogdanovich. But Bogdanovich also directed the film I'm talking about. Uh, it's one of the laugh movies. They all laughed? Only yeah, when I They laugh. all laughed. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> no. <laughs> Richard won that coin to us. <laughs> um, yeah, so the, the his two daughters play the two daughters of... Mm. Ben Gazzara's daughters. Uh, the Another one was technically from the 60s. It was a Patreon request. 68. 2001? 2001, A Space Odyssey, mm. when he's talking to Vivian Kubrick on mm. the telephone. Okay. And then the other three are all sons. Um, actually, one of them is a mix of sons and daughters, or I guess stepdaughters. One stepdaughter and multiple sons and a bunch of step lions. Oh, no. Roar? That's right. Mm. And then another one is super low budget based on a book, but a lot of the cast and crew were related because it looks like it was just like a home movie, basically. Was it home movies? No. <laughs> okay. Um, Scream. Nope. Has some immortal people in it. Tuck Everlasting? Tuck Everlasting. And the last one I have is one of your favorite movies. Sphinx? No. <laughs> it's one that we all like. But it's it has a special place in your heart. Uh, Excalibur. That's right. Yeah, John Borman's daughter. Yeah, what a John Borman's son. <laughs> oh, wasn't but wasn't his his daughter playing the? Oh, yeah. The, the, the girl who's giving birth. Maybe it was. Maybe it was a daughter and a son. Um, but I, I remember his son played the creepy kid. Yeah, more the Mordred kid. Yeah. yeah. Derek pops in to invite Julie to lunch later. Derek calls the newsroom and Bobby offers to take a message for Jamie since she's currently on the air. Uh, just. Tell her Derek called. Is there a number where you can be reached, Derek? No, no. Just, uh, I'll call back later. Bobby concludes that the flowers are from this Derek character, presumably a new boyfriend of Jamie's. 
He delivers a note about the call to Jamie during the next commercial break, but she doesn't know a Derek. We cut to Derek and his coworker Julie enjoying lunch at the marina. Julie asks Derek if he's ever been completely in love with someone, and he mentions a fleeting obsession with a college professor. He took every class she offered, but he never made a move. You mean you never told her? Nope. You should have told her. Julie takes this moment to invite him to a movie sometime, and he tells her he's seeing someone, but he's not comfortable elaborating. At home, we see Jamie changing out of her work clothes as she listens to voicemails from her friend Robin, her lover Brandon, and Derek asking if she liked the flowers. The phone rings again as she's standing here, and it's Derek again. He invites her to join him for a meal, and she asks how he came by her number. <laughs> wasn't very hard. She's understandably cautious turning this man down. After she hangs up, she immediately calls her friend Robin, asking to visit. Outside, we follow her walking directly from her own house, across a few yards, to Robin's house down the street. She's greeted at the door with a freshly mixed drink. Robin is being played by my latest early 80s crush, Colleen Camp, who we last saw in Bogdanovich's They All Laughed. Jamie has barely started telling Robin about her new admirer when the phone rings again. Of course, it's Derek again, and Robin thoughtlessly hands the phone back to Jamie. From this point forward, they should have realized the man is within eyeshot of her house, since there's no other reason he would have assumed she'd be here at this moment. Yeah, that never, like, they never put that together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. First of all, how did he get Robin's number also? Wasn't hard. Wasn't hard, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, that's, that's very clever screenwriting. <laughs> Jamie instructs Robin to hang up, and of course the phone is instantly ringing again, so Jamie picks it up out of frustration. Jamie, you've got to see me. Would you please just leave me alone? The phone rings again, and Robin chews out the collar before she realizes it's Brandon inviting Jamie home. Jamie gives away the drink and walks back to her house. It occurs to her halfway there that this gentleman caller is probably in her neighborhood. As she scans the bushes, she crashes headlong into older neighbor woman Mrs. Caluso walking her dog at night. At home, Jamie explores the dark house, calling repeatedly for Brandon and getting no response. Of course, his eventual abrupt appearance is played as a jump scare, and he apologizes for taking so long to respond and scaring her. Yeah, this was really frustrating. Yeah, it it's seems super intentional. Yeah, it's just, well, first the neighbor dog scare is like, oh, it's just me taking my dog Brutus for a walk. It's like, okay, thanks for the expo exposition here. I lady, wondered what you and this dog were doing out here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but the fact that she's calling Brandon, Brandon, like it's a freaking 1313 movie. Yeah. He might as well just, have popped out going, blah! Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to scare you. I heard you calling me, but I just chose not to respond. I mean, he was in the shower, right? He was, we he, didn't hear a shower. We right? didn't hear. He he comes out with shaving cream on his face. So unless he was showering and shaving with cream in the shower, which seems illogical. As the sun rises on the Hollywood Hills the next day, Derek speaks to his wall of Jamie faces. You can't keep your eyes off me, can you? Back at the newsroom, Bobby walks Jamie to her office and asks about her new boyfriend, Derek. She insists she doesn't know the man, and he's not a boyfriend. Insanely, she is inside brushing her hair at the vanity in her changing room for maybe 20 seconds before she notices Derek sitting on the couch behind her. He's holding a box of chocolates tied up with a ribbon and introduces himself. He presents the chocolates with an apology and promises never to bother her again. For the second time already, she asks how he's gotten so close to her, and he avoids answering with the same non-explanation. It wasn't hard. I feel like at this point I would be going to my employer and right. being like, "Why are you letting this guy in here? Who? How? How did he get in? And right. and if and if this is going to be a reoccurrence, you're you're posting somebody at my door. Yeah. Are we shooting like in a soundstage that's just in a neighborhood, or is right. it on a lot? Because I should be protected where we are. 
Bobby pops in with something for Jamie just as Derek is leaving, and she stupidly thanks the intruder for the chocolate. Yep. Shut up. Yep. Don't encourage him. Yeah. I, I I put she engages with him, and that's the yeah. worst thing you could do because now he's like, oh, okay, this yeah. worked. If she did anything, it should have been like, by the way, this chocolate is going in the garbage because mm-hmm. I don't know what the fuck it is. Bobby teases her about the attractive visitor. Handsome devil, isn't he? Derek is clearly encouraged by her gratitude, and as he leaves the building, he crosses paths with Brandon coming in. Brandon is annoyed to learn the man was just here, and as he walks Jamie through the parking lot to her car, Derek snaps another batch of photos. And again, she still has the chocolates with her. I'm Mm -hmm. like, why? I thought that there was going to be like a tracker in them or something. I thought Mm -hmm. so too. I was certain that like they were either going to be poisoned or he put something in there to find her. Yeah. She pulls away to head home, but when Brandon gets to his car, he finds his tires flat. We follow Jamie along Mulholland and into the hills where she is predictably followed by neighbor Derek until he swerves around a detour to beat her home. Inside, she spritzes a few houseplants with water until she hears a knock at the door. When she answers, Derek is standing there with his camera, snapping photos right in her face. He chases her around the living room until he has her cornered on the sofa, screaming at him to leave. Impressively, Brandon has already replaced his flat tires and shown up to the house. As he's coming up the steps, he can hear her screaming and runs inside to yank Derek off her. But that means he changed his tires out in like five minutes. Did he have two spares or something? Well, I mean, I guess we really don't know how much time has progressed since she got home and has been walking around spraying her plants. Maybe. Maybe she has lots of plants. (laughs) He starts knocking the guy around as Jamie confusingly begs him to stop. Eventually, she is literally tugging Brandon away from her attacker. Even more frustratingly, they let him keep the photos. Yeah. Oh, my God. I have that like in all caps in my notes. They let him keep the camera. He definitely should have destroyed the camera and the film before this man left. Yes. Or better yet, kept them as evidence to press charges with. Later, we'll learn this film takes place in an alternate universe where you can't charge someone with very obvious crimes, even if you're rich and famous. <laughs> we cut now to Jamie and Brandon reporting this occurrence directly to Captain Maxwell of the LAPD. Maxwell lies that nothing they've described is a crime and there's nothing he can do about it. For some reason, they don't bother reminding him that Jamie is an anchor woman on network television. And if she wanted, tonight, she could explain that the LAPD is no longer prosecuting people for assault and harassment. And he entered her home. Mm-hmm. Right. Like the, the, He that, shoved the door open and attacked her in her home. I, I don't understand why they can't do anything. Yeah, because the script requires them to not do anything. But it's crazy that they're not already threatening this cop. I mean, even like, when you're going to be on the news tonight, so congratulations. Yeah. We're going to mention you by name. Even when the cop comes back later, I don't like it. It almost feels like he's really trying to help him for yeah, some reason. It's like and it's I his son. We find out later it. this is Derek Maxwell. We cut away now to a photo shoot and a small but elegantly adorned theater. Jamie's friend Robin is on stage in a burlesque outfit with a big feathered bonnet. The photographer is giving her shit about ruining the session because he's very anti-materialism, and this is supposed to be a purely artistic project. Art? Fart. Look, Fernando, I work with the worst and I work with the best, and I'm good at what I do. But if you expect me to climb up there and straddle that swing with my ass, you can kiss it, honey. Just kiss it. Robin kicks her way through the set on her way back to her changing room. Naturally, Derek wanders in uninvited. She tries to chew him out, assuming he's part of the same crew, but he momentarily wins her over by explaining he's not affiliated with them. Then, stupidly, he introduces himself as Derek, which we'll come to learn is his actual name. Yeah. He's just a James Bond idiot telling everyone who he is and making his job harder. Of course, Robin is petrified to learn this man is her good friend's stalker, 
especially considering she's likely heard about his intrusion on her home. He insists that Jamie has misunderstood things between them, and he wants Robin to coordinate a meal with Jamie where he can explain himself. She kicks him out of her changing room, and he warns that she will regret kicking him out. Spoiler alert, she won't. Do you guys recall the last time we saw Colleen Camp rush people out of her dressing room? Hint, it was the only other film we've seen mm -hmm, Colleen Camp yeah. in. <laughs> I don't remember. Richard won the right. coin toss. They all laughed? That's right. <laughs> I was going to get it wrong again. <laughs> I couldn't remember which one I said. And I was like, wait, which one did Jesse say? It was the opposite. God damn it. <laughs> we cut to Jamie and Robin shopping at the mall. They stop into the type of bizarre rich person outlet store that must exist, but I've never seen. They explain to the salesman played by Woodrow Parfrey that they're here to spend a lot of money to distract themselves from life's troubles. He presents them with a 55-pound cigarette lighter in the shape of a golden elephant. You press a button on its head and the trunk emits a flame. I was so ready for her to light Derek on fire with this thing later, <laughs> but she turns down the sales pitch. Yeah, because uh, that would have been a great line about talking about the elephant in the room. Yeah. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> Next, he presents her with a music box, which she likes but claims not to need, which wasn't a problem I noticed with the elephant. Yeah. It's like, I actually really need a 55-pound elephant. As they continue shopping elsewhere, Jamie thinks she sees Derek speaking with the music box salesman, especially after she hears the song playing again. The customer manages to obscure his face from her throughout the transaction. Yeah, somehow, even though she's walking in a continuous straight line, it's like he's constantly shifting himself yeah. to the left just to keep himself in the, in the crosshairs, out of the crosshairs. Jamie dips into a phone booth to make a call home to check her voicemails. We watch her dial the numbers with the tips of her fingernails, which for some reason disturbed me. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was getting flashbacks to uh, Can't Stop the Music, where the woman was like dialing a number. And she got her fingernails stuck in the uh, phone and she was stuck in the phone booth for like 20 minutes. And it was freaking me out to just think about. Well, also, it, it was very strange to have such a insert of her dialing specific numbers. It was like, because when it did that, I was like, am I supposed to be paying attention to these numbers? No. Because why? Why all of a sudden? <laughs> if she goes into a phone booth. I'll just and she, you know, does like just. I assume like, she's calling. Yeah, I'm just, I just I, I don't need this insert. She's like, no, people need to know that she's dialing. I don't want people to think she just went in there to fart. <laughs> <laughs> Among the messages is another one from Derek telling her the pictures he took against her will turned out great. When she exits the booth to find Robin, she crashes into Derek, who presents her with the music box she was admiring. She knocks it out of his hands to the ground where the glass shatters out of the music box lid. She tells him again to leave her alone and he seems bewildered by the rejection. A crowd gathers to stare ominously at the man and he backs away from them furious. We cut back to the news desk and behind the scenes, Brandon is speaking with a visiting psychologist guest named Dr. Weston. It seems he's gotten her up to speed on the Derek situation and she diagnoses his condition as Clarenbolt syndrome, aka erotomania where the victim is under the illusion that the love he gives to someone is a return. Now, this Derek is in love with Jamie, and he probably thinks that she's just as much in love with him. She doesn't even know the man. That minor detail doesn't matter. He is in love with her. She further supposes that there are many lonely people in the world who connect with television personalities on a personal level. She warns that Derek's psychosis could culminate in violent behavior, and they should steer clear of rejection or confrontation to avoid Derek's wrath. She even goes so far as to suggest that this guy might kill Jamie if they push his buttons the wrong way. And then all of his friends would swear up and down that he was a kind of person who couldn't harm a flea. 
We cut back to Derek in a dressing room, still reeling from the rejection at the mall. He opens the music box to let it play out and hops in the shower. We hard cut to Jamie and Robin at a gym, and Jamie explains she might stay at Brandon's place for a while. Insanely, Robin talks her out of that plan without offering up her own home for Jamie to stay at. I would never have gone back to that house after the day he busted in with the camera, not until he was in jail, probably. Yeah, yeah uh, I don't know about this time, but another time that comes up, yeah. then I was like, yeah, I'm not, yeah going back. Go home. I'm not going back here anymore. Brandon goes back to the police to beg them to do their jobs, and Maxwell says he's too tired. <laughs> Brandon, I've had a real slice of life day, and I'm tired. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for bugging you. But she's, I, I also feel like she's not... She's not poor. She could probably pay a security guard yes. to be with her until this stuff is is resolved. Yeah, and it seems like old times, like, Charles Gordon went to the police and was like, hey, could you lend me, like, four officers because I'm throwing a house party and I want security? And they were like, no problem. You're rich and live in this yeah. area. That means, yes, whatever you want is okay. You, you, There are services, especially in Hollywood, yeah. that you they recruit off-duty police to run security. And for sure, even at the time. Yeah. yeah. And also, there's private detectives. Hire a private detective. Find out who this guy yeah. is who's calling you and following you around. Yeah, it, it wouldn't be hard. <laughs> yeah. It, she, they, it, yeah. It'll take two seconds to realize there's a guy watching you up there. Yeah. yeah. Because in this universe, cops don't even do what rich people want. His advice to Brandon is to get a gun, wordlessly recommending that he kill the man to protect his girlfriend. I didn't say that. I'm a cop. I can't say that. I just said get a gun. Back at the gym, Robin and Jamie step out of a sauna and walk through a locker room crowded with naked women. The scene provides little else, but I'm sure producers fought hard for it. <laughs> Real hard. <laughs> with their hard penises. <clears throat> That's what I meant. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> they have erections. <laughs> Stop. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the dressing room, Derek tears in half a photo of Jamie and Brandon together and closes her half in the music box, which he leaves on the counter, and I realized finally that this is not his home, but Jamie's residential dressing room. Seemingly from inside his own home, Derek watches Jamie arrive later, and we follow her through the house to the dressing room. She's reading her mail as she walks through the house, and the tense music prepares us for a jump scare of some sort. Yeah, she who who opens up a letter and just walks through a house blindly <laughs> blindly reading a letter with like such small print like there's she's walking through hallways that have no light yeah, yeah. it's like you can't see what that says why is there is there is there some kind of threatening thing that's happened to her recently in this home yeah exactly she's bizarrely amused by the content of whatever she's reading even though we never find out what this letter was about she starts a bath and we watch her slowly undress beside the vanity where Derek just left the music box She's so distracted by the mail that she doesn't notice it, even as the camera slowly pushes past her toward it on the counter. Impossibly, even though we just saw him watching her enter her own house from outside, we are now entreated to Derek's POV from inside her closet. Somehow he snuck past her and past us into this house, <laughs> into this very room, and closed himself up without getting caught. If I were the editor, I would simply take out the shot of him in his own house watching her come home. It makes sense that after the shower in her house that he might have hidden in this closet until she came back, but not that he turned invisible or phased through walls to get to his current position. Derek watches her undress through the crack in the closet door and even slides out of the way when she dips into the same closet to take something out. 
Somehow the closet is wide enough that he can walk the whole way down it and watch her in the tub, too, so he watches her for the entire bath. She caresses herself pornographically in the tub while in the shadows of the closet, <laughs> Derek strokes his own sweaty face. Yeah, you know, this is what ladies do in the tub. Yeah, just calf <laughs> massage. Very gentle calf massage. Lift my leg as high out of the water as I can. Weirdly, the phone rings without Derek's help. She exits the bath to answer it, but there's no one on the line. I guess this was the writer's way of cutting the bath short so we don't spend seven minutes watching it. Yeah. But we could easily have shown time pass another way. Only now, as she hangs up the phone, does she notice the broken music box and torn photo on her desk. He addresses her from the closet. Jamie. She runs screaming to the front door and crashes into Brandon entering. She tells him Derek's here, but by the time they reach her bedroom, he's gone, and the curtains are billowing in the open window. So this is the point at which I say, we're leaving town. Yeah. Like, pack it up. We're getting out of here. Yeah. We cut next door to Derek's place where he collapses breathlessly to the carpet with his music box and photo. He's smiling and laughing after another successful intrusion on her life. There's a knock at the door, and it's Julie from the studio returning a pack of photos he left at work. She swears she didn't open it because he's so private about his photos. She seems to have something else to say, but she has trouble putting it into words. Derek tries to let her down easy by claiming he is freshly engaged and he wishes things were different. Next door, we see Brandon has taken Maxwell's advice and he teaches Jamie how to use a shotgun. Hopefully he also taught her how to store it in a safe where her routine home invader won't just find it and use it on her. Brandon echoes an earlier sentiment from Robin that Jamie needs to get serious about protecting herself. She claims she's too strong to sink to Derek's level. Strong don't mean jack shit when you're dealing with crazy. Is his level having a gun? Because he's not actually been No, but he's been violent. shooting her, sort of. <laughs> I mean, that's the that's the point that the cop makes. It's just like, like, well, he hasn't done anything. It's like, I'm well, not touching you. I'm not touching you. <laughs> that's what the cop said, basically. <laughs> he's broken into her home several times, which is enough for him to be arrested. But, like, I, I get her point that shooting him seems extreme when he hasn't been violent but i don't but he I, could turn violent at any moment but I and he does I, later i i wouldn't call that sinking to his level yeah no i wouldn't either i think that's a, a silly way of putting it derek calls the house right then and brandon steals the phone away to inform him that cops are on the case derek is amused by the threat because he too believes he's committed no crimes and there was no evidence linking him to their home Derek basically confirms the TV psychiatrist's diagnosis when Brandon demands he leave Jamie alone for good. I love Jamie, and she loves me. It's that simple. We watch Derek for a moment playing with an engagement ring and smiling as though he plans to propose. For some reason, Brandon goes out to lunch with his good friend, the worthless Captain Maxwell, who continues to refuse to do his job and thinks it's hilarious that Brandon's girlfriend is being targeted by a maniac. Maxwell has good news, though. He's put someone on the case following Jamie around to keep an eye out for this stalker. But it's not a cop. It's an ex-con. He literally asked a second criminal to follow Jamie around all day. Understandably, Brandon is disappointed with this course of action. And less understandably, we never follow up on this plot point in any way. Mm -hmm. There's no fake out with a second stalker. We never mention this again. Like, I thought for sure. Even help. Yeah. <laughs> I thought for sure either this guy was going to save the day or there would be a situation where she accidentally killed the other stalker. Yeah. I was going to say, like, yeah, he's the one who's going to get shot with a shotgun. Yeah. Brandon reminds Maxwell that the police slogan is to serve and protect, and Maxwell is infuriated at the suggestion he should do his job. 
He shoves his food in front of Brandon and whips out his gun, claiming to have served and then protected him here at the diner. The rest of the diners are all disturbed at a man waving a revolver around, and Brandon asks him to put it away. Just just stay cool. Yeah. <laughs> stay cool I kind of wanted him to just shoot him in the face right here. It's like, <laughs> wait, what the hell? Like, this Maxwell character is the real villain, and we had no idea. Maxwell gives a big speech about how annoying it is that people only call the police when they need something. It's never just to check in and see how they're doing. <laughs> It's like he's some sort of public servant. He tells Brandon to leave him alone. This is the weirdest character in the movie. <laughs> because at the start, Brandon and Maxwell are portrayed as being close personal friends. What is the point of being friends with a police captain so high up the chain in the department if he's not even willing to follow basic police procedure on your behalf? Like, he's not even asking him to do anything illegal or irregular. He's just like, can you just protect us like you're supposed to do? And he's like, I'm tired of doing that. Is there another police officer we could talk to? No, I'm the only one. <laughs> the only and captain. If you're the only one, then I actually am sorry. I'm sorry I'm bothering you. <laughs> I'm taking a lot of your time. We cut to an on-location report from Jamie Douglas being edited at the studio. She's talking about a recent string of killings dubbed the Sweetheart Murders. Oh boy, I can't wait for this the to come around. The worst subplot of this entire film, the Sweetheart Murders. As the editor is scrubbing through the footage, Jamie notices Derek standing behind her during the report. Her assistant Bobby suggests that perhaps Derek is responsible for these high-profile killings and Jamie is disturbed enough to leave the room. Is this just a red herring? Like, I don't, what is uh, the apparently, point of this? Yeah. Or maybe he's the killer. We never come back to this. <laughs> never. We never explain why we're talking about this series of serial killings in the background. They seem coincidental. I, I had a theory and I was super excited about it. Maxwell's killing them. Uh, no. Um, I, I, With a silver hammer. Um, I, I thought it was going to be Julie killing all the girls who ever got oh. close to Derek. Yeah, and I was thinking about that too. And then they frame him for it, and it turns out that she's the one killing everybody. Yeah. It's like night school. <laughs> Bobby follows her into the hall and apologizes for his thoughtless joke. He assures her that if Derek was in the background, that he was only there to see her and nothing more. He walks her to set, and Derek emerges from an office off the same hall. We see him working in the newsroom at a typewriter used to compose the copy for the teleprompter. Later, he sneaks up to a teleprompter desk and turns in what he claims are some updated pages. The girls at the desk are too distracted by the cute new guy and pass along the pages without reading them. Jamie sits down for the nightly report when suddenly the script is addressing her in particular. This cannot be the way that this functions. No, for like, sure. There has to be a pretty tight loop on mm -hmm. what goes to air. No, 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 you just drop pages yep. on the desk. Anyone, anyone yep. can just drop it off. And later in tonight's news, I'll have the first in a series of special reports on the sweetheart killer case that has been plaguing Los Angeles for the past three months. Jamie, I'm watching you. She freezes in her tracks, and we can read the words, I love you, and if I can't have you, no one can. Love you always, Derek, on the prompter. She has a full-on panic attack on live television, and nobody in the control room has the brain power to interrupt the broadcast. Mm -hmm. Everyone just sits here in silence, Please. watching her for a full 40 seconds of dead air. The police won't help. Nobody will help. He's going to kill me. Not until she stands up to walk away from the desk does anyone think to cut to commercial. She is quickly replaced with another blonde anchor woman, and Bobby walks her back to her office. At home, we see her sitting with Brandon and taking in a drink. Of course, Brandon thinks the perfect thing to calm her down is another round of skinny dipping in their mm -hmm. backyard jacuzzi. Yeah. The, this... <laughs> Let's get let's get the most vulnerable we can get. Yeah. Put this gun here in this room. Look, I know there's a guy that's come to our house a couple times. It's, it's really creepy. Where we live. You should get naked <laughs> and go outside. 
What? I don't know if that's right. And like any good thriller movie boyfriend, he wanders back into the house alone, promising to be right back. The phone rings inside, and it's Maxwell. They've identified the stalker. But he doesn't say, by the way, he lives next door to you. Yeah. <laughs> he could have said that here. Hang on, let me get that down. Derek Sanford. As Brandon reads the name back to Maxwell, we see Maxwell scribbling on the window of his phone booth that cops do it better. <laughs> Clearly not true. Except, it's not except even a fun if you're talking pun. about police work. Then yeah. we fucking suck at it. But it's not even like a pun, you know? Yeah. Also, he gives them Derek's phone number. Did he? Yeah, because they write it down. Like, uh, Brandon writes it down. It's like, why would you give Brandon Derek's phone That's number? That's very weird. I didn't notice that C- part. Because you want to call him. <laughs> yeah. Because she will. Brandon loads up a charcuterie board and takes it out to the jacuzzi. The camera holds on a knife stabbed in the wheel of cheese he left behind. He joins her in the jacuzzi and they begin making love. But you just made a whole board of cheese. Oh, yeah. Eat the get, cheese. It's going to get warm. We watch them in the POV of someone peeking through the plants in their yard. I wonder who this could be. It's not the ex-con that they've asked to follow her around, mm-hmm. which would have also made sense. Just as Brandon appears to be climaxing, the music turns sour and Brandon collapses backward into the pool with a knife in his back. The cheese knife. <laughs> Jamie screams horrified as Derek rises from behind her dying or dead boyfriend. Definitely dying or dead because his face down in yeah, the water. And no one's doing anything about it. <laughs> he can still be alive. Yeah, he might just be paralyzed and you're just like, oh no, he's definitely dead. I'm not going to help. She backs terrified to the opposite edge of the jacuzzi while Derek drags Brandon out of the water. We see him continuing to drag the body through dirt completely off her property and burying it somewhere else in the hills that night. In his absence, Jamie phones 911 and gets an outgoing message. This is a recording. You have reached the police department emergency number. All our stations are busy at the moment. Please do not hang up. Your call will be answered as soon as possible. Do you guys recall the last time she called 911 and got an outgoing message? Well, it's, it's not 911 because it doesn't exist, but she calls the police and they it was Hell Knight, which was the same producer? Not Hell Knight. It wasn't Hell Knight? Nope. Don't they call the, the, the police and nobody answers? They go to the police station in person and the police say, we know that house, you guys are pranking us. They were both parody films. Horror parodies. Saturday the 14th? Nope. Two other ones from 1981. Uh, student bodies? That's one of them. Uh, listen, I, I'm in terrible danger, and, and, and I need some help. I, I need... have reached the police. We are closed. <laughs> Another parody film. It was after student bodies. Uh, it has to be the werewolf one. Yep. Full Moon High? Oh, full, full Moon High is correct. This is your Full Moon Police Department. We're not in right now, but if you leave your message when you hear the beat, She drops the phone hopeless and stares out the window. Next, she dials Captain Maxwell and it rings out for what looks like 20 minutes. Yeah. It's like, why is she still here? Yeah. You can call Robin. Walk to Robin's house. Yeah. Stay with Robin. Call call that old lady next door neighbor. Right. You have options. Back in his own home, Derek cleans the cheese knife and then slices up an apple with it. Now his phone rings and it's Jamie. I need you. Please come back. He smiles like he's been expecting this call. I'm so disgusted because that's not the intended use for that knife. <laughs> what, the blood part or the, the apple? Yes. It's for it's cheese not for stabbing and he's using it for people's fruit. backs. I don't think this is a cheese knife. 
<laughs> he stabs the knife into the wall and walks down the hill to Jamie's place. She climbs fully nude into her bed, though we'll learn this is just for show, specifically <laughs> to confuse us and no one else. When Derek reaches her bedroom, he pulls back the covers to reveal a pile of blankets and pillows, and across the room, she levels a shotgun at him. And she's fully dressed. Yeah. So she got naked just for this one shot to confuse the camera. Before she can get a shot off, he turns and drives straight through the closed bedroom window and somersaults into the yard. She racks and fires multiple times, but he escapes unscathed and races back up the hill to his place. I had two notes here. <laughs> it's like, first of all, Jamie's got a gun. Uh, <laughs> but uh, also, it was like, Jamie, you're alive. And you're a, a terrible, terrible shot. shot. <laughs> uh, do you remember the last time you made a Jamie's got a gun reference? I don't. Halloween? It was another movie with a or Derek Halloween in too. it. Mm. Another movie with a Derek. It was, oh, direct- was it Bo Derek? It was Bo Derek. <laughs> <laughs> a Fantasies. She was nope. in Fantasies. No, uh, she was in the Tarzan? Ape Ape Man. Janie's got a uh, Janie. So Tarzan the Ape Man. Yeah, <laughs> that was when. That, there's this weird subplot where she hires a ferry to take her down river mm. to where her father is and kills the captain of the ship in the middle of the night <laughs> and they just never bring it up again. It's like, what? I also I also had a note that like, no one's reporting these gunshots, but then I remember that the police is closed for the evening. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's too late. It's also L.A. Yeah. Just as he gets home, she's calling for him. She says they'll have to settle this between the two of them since the police have decided not to be involved. He honestly can't fathom why she doesn't welcome him with open arms into a loving relationship. After she hangs up, he tears down his wall of her photos. Jamie's phone rings now, and it's Robin calling to check on her, but she hangs up on her friend without saying a word. Now, there's a knock on the door at Derek's place, but it's not Jamie or Maxwell, it's Julie. She's here because she knows everything that's gone on between him and Jamie. Captain Maxwell came by the studio asking questions, and she wants to help him get this whole mess settled. Derek plays dumb, and right away, another person's knocking at the door, and this time it is Captain Maxwell, offering to keep Derek out of jail if he promises to lay off Jamie Douglas. Why? Why are you making a yeah. deal with this guy? Why? Yeah. Like, just he arrest owes him, him right nothing. now. But this is this is this is his mo. Is he gets he finds criminals, doesn't arrest like, them, and makes deals with yeah. them to do other he errands been like, for him. <laughs> hey, look, I want you to lay off Jamie Douglas. I have a different woman for you to stalk <laughs> because the guy that's following Jamie now for me was originally stalking her. Yeah, did I'm you, trading did you, your stalkers. Did you kill him? Did you know that there was another guy stalking her? Yeah, we don't. We never like explain that Derek killed that guy. We just never see him at all. After Maxwell leaves, Julie seems to struggle with the same disorder that Derek has and offers her assistance over and over, even though he clearly hates her. Don't you understand what you're doing? She doesn't love you. You're a liar. He forces her out the door and she walks back out to her car to cry. Derek points his telephoto lens back into Jamie's house and spots the shotgun sitting unattended on a chair in the office. From her car, Julie notices Derek creeping down the hill to Jamie's place and follows him. Insanely, Captain Maxwell just got in his car and left because he doesn't give a fuck about anything. (laughs) So you could have stayed for three seconds and seen Derek come outside and go right back to Jamie's house. At least tell Jamie that the dude lives Mm. next to her. He lives within 100 feet of you. It's like that guy that's stalking you, he's right up there. Yeah. Jamie's phone is ringing again, and this time she doesn't even bother to pick it up. It's crazy how often the screenwriter relies on phones ringing or doors being knocked on to move the story forward. Jamie fixes herself a drink and then, wandering into the office, notices the shotgun is gone. Derek, 
sneaks up and presses it into her chin to get her attention, and then tosses it back into the doorway. He pins her to the bed and uses the cheese knife to threaten her. They slap each other hard back and forth, and then she punches him off of her to the floor. They struggle against each other on the floor, clawing their way toward the shotgun, but neither is making much progress. Derek throws her back onto the bed and holds the knife tight to her neck again. She decides on a reverse psychology approach and pretends to be desperate for sex with him. When he starts to slowly undo his belt, she's suddenly rushing to unbuckle it for him, and he doesn't like this turn of events. If she's not scared, then he can't enjoy it. He's so disoriented by the tactic that she gets the knife away from him and holds it to his throat. <laughs> Weirdly, Jamie says, You little son of a bitch. I'm gonna kill you. Instead of just killing him. <laughs> just kill him. He's in your house. She lets him go and turns to walk away when he tackles her to the floor one last time. He raises the knife to stab her when Julie appears in the doorway pleading for him to stop and then firing the shotgun into his chest. Derek falls backward, bleeding from a gaping wound in his stomach, and Julie sobs in the doorway. We dissolve from Jamie's gasping face to the pile of torn and folded photos on the floor beside Derek's former shrine to Jamie. The camera tilts down on the shattered music box with the engagement ring on top, and we freeze for credits to roll. The end. Ugh. The seduction, everybody. Th this is like the least sexy thriller. <laughs> like, even, even her her partner is Brandon guy is like not super attractive and like it's like oh no you... no not 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 super attractive he's actually unattractive yeah. I don't know Michael Sarazen like, she 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 is so far out of his league mm -hmm. yeah yes. I mean he was he was a heartthrob though as as a younger actor so I think yeah. I think they were relying on people knowing that I I guess mm -hmm. he yeah. just looked like an old dude yeah and so when they're having like their steamy hot tub Ugh. sex I was like oh, this isn't it, that this made isn't me a like, sexy thriller yeah. that made me very uncomfortable the way that they kiss each other in the hot tub like it 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 felt like neither of them had ever kissed anyone before yeah. and it was really awkward like let's just push our mouths together yeah I mean she is insanely gorgeous in this movie though like Morgan Fairchild is a very beautiful woman I think. The thought process of the filmmakers began and ended with, this woman is on a popular television show, but she can't whip her tits out on TV. Mm -hmm. So let's make a movie and let's have it be a sexual thriller so that we convince her that it's necessary for her to be naked for 90% of it. I didn't want to have to watch this movie. And you convinced me to watch it by telling me there was boobies. And there were. And, and they, they were, were boobies, nice right? boobies. Yeah. But it was not enough. No. To yeah. counteract... The grossness of the movie. In yes. Terms. Yeah. Even even like the sauna locker room scene isn't like, you know, it's it's like it's more clinical because like, I don't know. It, I it felt really gratuitous. Yeah. Exactly. Because it, but it wasn't like it wasn't like sexy coeds in the shower giggling like yeah. in, in, like splits. It was just like just walking just back and women forth. trying to re to to relax and and have be be fit and this is like. Well, this isn't attractive. Yeah. This is this is what just are we doing? people like doing stuff. It's like we just want to to cover our bases and be able to say there were 30 boobs in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> if you took out the nudity of this movie, it would be a lifetime movie of the week. Yeah. Like it's that it would it's be that a kind lifetime of movie. commercial of the week. <laughs> it would it would be 8 minutes long tops. It, it, it it's I had to watch it over 3 viewings. <laughs> it was so boring. Yeah. And this was one of those ones where I couldn't do my notes at work. <laughs> so I was just like, nope, I can't, I can't put this one on again. People are going to think I'm weird. But it reminds me of... But Caligula. Yeah, Caligula was fine. <laughs> fine. Yeah. 
Just research. <laughs> I want to know what ancient Rome was like. <laughs> Guys are always thinking about ancient Rome. <laughs> yep. This is why. That head lawnmower thing, you know? Oh, you yeah. Need to get the that head back. mower. Yeah, but that's seduction. Um, I would say thumbs down, probably. Yeah, thumbs down. Yeah, it's a thumbs down. It, it's not good. Yeah, the, I I feel like the honestly the biggest problem for me is that the screenwriter didn't bother to come up with any legitimate reason that the cops wouldn't interrupt. Like it might as well have been like an under the dome thing where it's just like I went to the police, but uh, the cop said he just can't get past this our street. Mm-hmm. He just can't get past it. There's like a force field. Anyway, we're stuck in here with your stalker. It's like there's no explanation for why the cop isn't helping. Yeah, and again. Falling short of the police. Yeah. Private security, a private detective. You have so, so many options uh, and we're anything. not exploring any of them and we're not explaining why they aren't options. Yeah. And she's she's a news reporter. Her platform alone yeah. should either allow her to throw all these people under the bus because she reports about them. The cops, this dude, doesn't matter. Or get her employer to be like, oh, yeah, you got to be on TV every night. I should protect you. Right. <laughs> I mean, she does manage to say the police aren't doing anything and he's going to kill me on television <laughs> because the people in the control room are not keeping their fingers on yeah, the buttons. But then they just, what, let her go home? Mm-hmm. Like, they don't yeah. do anything about yep. it. <laughs> like, anyway, let's send her oh, home that guy, unattended. Somebody's going to kill you? All right, have a good night. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> and, then, and then Brandon is just like, hey, I know what I'll, I don't want to figure, but let's get naked and have sex in the hot tub. Yeah. You're always talking about how outdoor sex cheers you up. <laughs> By the way, do you guys recall the last time that someone went off script on the teleprompter? Even though technically she is following the teleprompter, okay. then then she adds some stuff later. Well, see, I was going to say the howling. I was going to say howling, the howling is one yeah. of them. <laughs> I, I can think of two other examples. Uh, eyewitness. Very close. Oh, I eyes of a stranger. Yes. Yeah. And then the third one, a woman is leveling charges against a, a local company. The Vespucci brothers. That doesn't sound. Oh familiar. wait, Vespucci. That was was that a funeral home? No, wait. Why do I know this? I know this. Hold on. <laughs> the Vespucci brothers did have a sort of funeral home, not for humans though. They offered funeral services to right. non-humans, but their uncle was a milk magnate, and they used one of his milk trucks and filled it with something else. Gas. Gas is correct. Uh... Oh my god! I have blocked that entire film from <laughs> oh my memory. My god. I was like, I, I was like, I knew it was a funeral home, but it wasn't yep. for people. I think the only things that we see them bury are they they make a coffin for a bird for a woman, oh. and then they make another really long coffin for a snake. Right. Okay. I'm vaguely <laughs> it's like recalling this. Was long coffin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that movie's so funny. You should definitely look for it. <laughs> Don't do it. Uh, anyway. Uh, where's this going? Letterboxed. Yeah, it's pretty rough. Um, I have it in. I forgot to do this at all. Eighth. I have it in eighth place out of nine right now. It is below Island of Blood, but above Madman. Uh, I have it at seventh, uh, which puts it below the aftermath, but above Island of Blood. I ha- I had it above Island of Blood. I'm like, no, that was just like weird enough that you're that it's more interesting than this. Yeah. <laughs> There's going to be so many things that pile up above it. Yeah. Um, I have it in sixth, which is just under Jaws of Satan and just above Madman. 
A writer-director here was David Schmoller. He was the writer and director of Tourist Trap previous to this. He also wrote The Day Time Ended for director Bud Cardos, which we covered with a minisode. He also wrote the first Puppet Master movie and retains character credits on the full series of films, which is like a lot. Yeah, <laughs> There's yeah. a lot of those movies. And in, in here, in contrast to my usual stance, I actually really enjoy the movie Tourist Trap. Yeah, I like Tourist Trap. It's great. The music here came from Lalo Schifrin. He has 218 composer credits including Cool Hand Luke, Bullet, Kelly's Heroes, The Beguiled, Pretty Maids All in a Row, THX 1138, The Earth 2 TV Movie, The Mission Impossible Series, Enter the Dragon, Charlie Varick, Roller Coaster. So far on the show, he has composed When Time Ran Out, Serial, The Nude Bomb, Brewbaker, Battle Creek Brawl, The Competition, Caveman, Dirty Harry, Buddy Buddy, Dirty Harry 2, a.k.a. Magnum Force, and just a couple movies back, A Stranger is Watching. More recently, he's composed the 93 Beverly Hillbillies and Rush Hours 1, 2, and 3. The cinematographer here was Mac Alberg. We've seen his work in Hell Knight, and he's back this year for Parasite 3D, and later Metal Storm, The Destruction of Jared Sin, Ghoulies, Reanimator, House, My Boyfriend's Back, and Good Burger. The editor here was Anthony DeMarco, he previously cut Hell Knight, and he's back again this season for The Concrete Jungle. Morgan Fairchild was Jamie Douglas. This was her first appearance in a feature film. At the time, she was best known for her work on TV series Flamingo Road. Later, she shows up as Dottie in Pee-wee's Big Adventure's film within the film, opposite her hotel co-star James Brolin as Pee-wee. She was also the mother of Matthew Perry's Chandler Bing on Friends. She also enjoyed long runs on Fashion House, Days of Our Lives, and General Hospital. Michael Sarazen played Brandon. Before this, he'd shown up in The Shoot Horses, Don't They, The Pursuit of Happiness, and The Reincarnation of Peter Proud. Vince Edwards played Maxwell. He was Val Cannon in Kubrick's The Killing. Andrew Stevens played Derek. We saw him last as unwilling psychic assassin Robin Sanza in De Palma's The Fury, and before that as Alvin in Death Hunt. He's back next season for 10 to Midnight. After this, he transitioned behind the camera to write and direct on titles like The Night Eyes series, and direct-to-video half-past-dead sequels. He reunited with Morgan Fairchild in 2019 for something called All Good Things. Colleen Camp played Robin. We saw her last as Christy Miller in Bogdanovich's They All Laughed. She's Julie in Battle for the Planet of the Apes, Billy's Girl in Funny Lady. She was a playmate, Miss May, in Apocalypse Now. Later, she appears in Valley Girl, Smokey and the Bandit 3. She's Yvette in Clue. She's Mrs. Vanderhoff in Wayne's World. Ratcliffe in Last Action Hero, and Connie Kowalski in Die Hard with a Vengeance. Kevin Brophy played Bobby. We saw him first as John Younger in The Long Riders. More recently, he was Peter in Hell Knight, an early title from the same three-picture deal with Avco Embassy. Woodrow Parfrey played Store Salesman. He was Maximus in Planet of the Apes. We've seen him now as a tobacco executive in Cold Turkey, Mr. Jaffe in Dirty Harry, and Clusio in Papio. So far in the 80s, He's appeared in Carney, Bronco Billy, and Used Cars. Betty Keane played Mrs. Caluso. She was Mickey Marquette in Moonlight Masquerade and Grandma in Dreamscape. Bob DeSimone played Photographer. He's Mr. Meeker in Savage Streets and a porn director in Angel 3, both of which were directed by his brother, Tom DeSimone, who also helmed Hell Knight from the same three-picture deal as this film. Shiler Schmoller played Ricky Wilson. This is the son of director David Schmoller the kid who won't smile for his photo. Jeffrey Richman played technical advisor. He's a longtime TV writer and producer with bountiful credits on Wings, Frasier, and mostly Modern Family, which he has EP'd for 226 episodes. Ron Gans played an announcer uncredited. He's Freddy in The Gay Deceivers. 
We've seen him so far in SOB, Hell Knight, and as the voice of the Crime Buster robot in Heartbeeps. He also voices Dragstrip on Transformers and Juggernaut in Pride of the X-Men. Jean Hasselhoff played Teleprompter Girl. She's the sister of David Hasselhoff, who we saw last as an unnamed party guest in Hell Knight. She also has predictable appearances on Knight Rider and Baywatch. I think that's everything for The Seduction. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find all our socials at linktree slash vintagevideopod. If you enjoy what we're doing, consider giving us a review on iTunes. I don't think it helps visibility, but it's good for morale. And if you really like the show, maybe you should join our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash vintagevideopodcast. What's that sound? We got one! That's right, it's a new patron, Hazel Honeycutt. As a $5 patron of the show, Hazel now has access to 49 full-size 70s reviews and a hand in choosing next month's film. For April of 1973, our $5 patrons are choosing between the following six titles. Caged Heat, Jonathan Demme's action comedy women in prison film starring Juanita Brown, Roberta Collins, and Erica Gavin. The Conversation, Francis Ford Coppola's conspiracy thriller about a surveillance expert concerned for the lives of the people he's asked to record. It stars Gene Hackman, John Cazale, and Alan Garfield. Foxy Brown, Jack Hill's exploitation vengeance actioner about a woman posing as a prostitute for access to the mobsters who killed her boyfriend. It stars Pam Greer, Antonio Fargus, and Peter Brown. The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, Gordon Hessler's fantasy adventure film, second in a series of five Sinbad films following the previously reviewed Seventh Voyage, featuring more Harryhausen animation and starring John Philip Law, Carolyn Monroe, and Tom Baker. It's Alive, Larry Cohen's horror sci-fi about a terrifying monster baby who kills whenever it's frightened. It stars John P. Ryan, Sharon Farrell, Andrew Dugan, and Guy Stockwell, and Truck Turner, Jonathan Kaplan's action crime film about the titular bounty hunter hunting down a target while an assassin targets Truck Turner himself. It stars Isaac Hayes in the lead, Yafet Koto, Alan Weeks, and Anazette Chase, each of which celebrate their 50th anniversaries in the month of April. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Venom, which IMDb describes like so. Terrorists, in the process of kidnapping a child, get trapped in a house with an extremely deadly snake. We leave you now with the trailer for Venom. Venom. The kidnap that became a murder, that became a siege, that became a death trap. <laughs> Venom. The fear explodes, trapping both hostages and kidnappers in its grip. The panic spreads, sending an entire police force into action. But this is a terror unlike anything anyone has ever faced. And when it uncoils to strike, your blood will run cold. Venom. Well, could you tell me just how dangerous, very dangerous is? The most dangerous snake in the whole world. That dangerous. The snake is loose! You'll have to turn over now. I I'm not going to hurt you. Oh, geez, Samson, come on! Whatever you feel, you will fear. Venom. Hey, Gina. Yeah, Patrick. It's nice out here, isn't it? Yeah, and here we are in the middle of the woods, alone, at night, with no cell service or protection from the elements in a place called... I don't have my glasses on. What does that sign say? 
uh, Crystal Lake. Ah, that, that, that sounds so peaceful. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> oh, what's that lumbering madman in the woods? Kill, 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 you say? Methinks you've given me an idea for an awesome podcast. <laughs> She sure seems to like the idea. So join me, Patrick Hamilton, and Gina Radcliffe, my partner in crime, for Kill by Kill as we unpack every glorious death, crazy character motivation, and inexplicable wardrobe choice from the entire Friday the 13th franchise, and much, much more. Talking about you, hello Mary Lou, prom night too. It's guaranteed to be a thrill ride of emotion from two horror film fans with way too much time on their hands. But don't take our word for it. Each episode will be joined by incredible guests, including Hollywood movie directors, film critics, TV execs, horror writers, comedy podcasters, even my date from senior prom. Plus, I'm pretty sure we're the only podcast in the world that asks you to choose your own death adventure. Pending. It's a real navel gazer that everyone should try at least once. So come on over to the not so dark side and join us for Kill by Kill on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher right now. Uh, Patrick, Jason's standing behind me right now with a giant knife. <laughs> yes, but it's not a knife. It's just a marshmallow roasting stick. Uh, maybe he just wants a s'more. Everyone loves those, even mutant backwoods killers. But how is he going to fit a s'more through the holes in that mask? 